So my name is Gad Hillman. I'm one of the organizers uh, of the seminar along with Kate Quinn and Steve Cushion. Uh, and it's a great personal pleasure to welcome uh, Richard and Sally Price to the seminar. I think that their work is known to most of you. It will take a long time to list all of their publications. So I will just say that as anthropologists, uh, Sally has worked more on aesthetics and museums and rich on ethnographic history and human rights. Of course, they have expanded our knowledge of Maroons and Maroon society, uh, especially with their work in French Guiana and in Suriname. And they divide their time between Martinique uh, and Paris. I've had the good fortune of visiting in both places, but especially in Martinique, where I sampled their version of Tipanche, which is the classic, of course, French Caribbean drink. Okay, thank you very much, Gad, and uh, Kate, for the invitation. We're very pleased to be here. I think this is the first time we've ever spoken at UCL, but, you know, memory starts to fade after a certain age, but that's what I think. <laughs> <clears throat> so, what do we mean by fruitful fictions? Let's choose an example from Alan Dawson's 2014 book, In Light of Africa, which looks at ideas of blackness in Africa in Bahia, Brazil. Dawson interviewed some 200 Bayanas, sellers of akalaje, the food of the gods in Afro-Bayan candomblé. Dressed in long white dresses, decorated with cowries and lace and a white turban, these women ply their trade on nearly every street corner of the city. Their stands are decorated with small statues of beloved orishas and other Afro symbols. But Dawson found that only 20 of the 197 women he spoke with were members of a candomblé tejero. The other 90% were evangelical Christians or practicing Catholics. When he expressed surprise about this to a local friend who was a hustler, the man said, well, what do you expect? I do what I do to make money, and so do these women. They know that if they don't wear these clothes or put orishas on their stoves, Nobody will buy from them. We end up selling our culture, he says. So, like countless examples that any of us could cite from all around the world, these bayanas are engaged in what we're calling a fruitful fiction. And what do we mean by partial truths? Pretty much what Jim Clifford did in his introduction to writing culture. Let's say it's what we as ethnographers or historians now think we know, with all the epistemological caveats that postmodernity is wrought, something like what Sergeant Joe Friday in simpler times used to call just the facts, man. Of course, these issues are part of a nexus of phenomena much remarked upon by anthropologists during the past couple of decades. The performance or enactment of aspects of an essentialized culture or ethnicity it's what the Komarovs have written about under the label of Ethnicity Inc. and what Jim Clifford calls indigenous articulations. Peoples from the Maoris to the Maasai, from the Aymara to the Zulu, have grabbed onto often fading symbols of ethnicity 
and rework them into central diacritica of a newly commoditized identity. Colonized peoples, semi-isolated or subaltern peoples, and other oppressed minorities around the world have been aggressively redefining themselves and their place within the force fields of globalization and late capitalism. And anthropologists and cultural critics have expressed mixed reactions and offered diverse analyses. We must admit to feeling that Jim Clifford's gaze of ironic detachment upon these fraught phenomena leaves us less than satisfied. And that the Komarov's Ethnicity Inc. seems, as they would probably be the first to admit, more the opening of a can of wriggling worms than a satisfying analysis. But the complicated phenomena that these scholars target do seem to us to stand at the very center of the world's that we as anthropologists must now engage with. Today what we'd like to tell you about is two cases where we as ethnographers have come to feel a certain ethical or epistemological discomfort with the relationship between our partial truths and our long-standing solidarity with people who've generously shared their lives with us over the years, that is Maroons in Suriname and French Guiana. One of our cases is a fruitful fiction involving art history. I'll be doing that part. The other one, which Rich will be telling you about, is a fruitful fiction involving international human rights. Our reflections on these two aspects of our relationship with Maroons uh, uh, were first triggered by a rereading of the field notes that we had written in the 1960s. It was a kind of virtual return to the interior of Suriname 50 whole years after our first long-term residence there. That rereading re was what led us to write a book called Saramaka Dreaming, which Duke, Duke <laughs> University Press published last year. Here I come to a little note for an image. In that book, we tried very hard to avoid indulging in some kind of nostalgic return to our youth, but instead tried to focus on interrogating our experiences of the 1960s in terms of the way they involved such phenomena as partial truths, fruitful fictions, and other twists and turns in the complex relationships between two American ethnographers and the members of a social and cultural world that had been built by rebel slaves in the 17th and 18th centuries. What we want to present today are some of the issues that carry those concerns into the new uh, context of the 20th century, uh, 21st century, as Maroons have come into increasing contact with social and cultural and economic realities outside of their villages in the rainforest. In 1989, Jean Jackson posed a very interesting question. She asked to what extent cultural criticism, and particularly critiques that stress the constructiveness of culture and tradition, run political risks. Putting it more bluntly, she asked, is there any way to talk about making culture without making enemies? Over the past 20 years or so, the two of us have made our fair share of enemies in this fashion. Uh, one in Rich's work on Martinique, where he criticized the nationalist myths that local writers and intellectuals were spinning about the Martinican past, 
And again, in Paris, where my deconstruction of Jacques Chirac's ambitious museum pro project brought down the wrath, and I mean wrath, of the cultural elite in Paris. These interventions have had serious personal costs, broken friendships with two of Martinique's most important intellectuals, and virtual censorship of our books by major publishers in Paris who have treated me something the way Donald Trump treats people who dare to criticize him. Now in this, we're not alone. For example, in a review of Stéphane Palmier's book of uh, 2013 called The Cooking of History, which deconstructs the idea of Afro-Cuban religion, Virginia Dominguez pointed to Palmier's evident discomfort in criticizing an idea that is the lifeblood of practi practitioners, some of whom are very good friends of his, and the multiple risks that this kind of critique runs for him, in his case. But such risks have in no way diminished our anthropological zeal to tell our partial truths as we see them, and we imagine the same is true of Stefan. So, as I said, today we want to present two examples. First, there's my discomfort when some of the people from the society we've always championed have changed their tune and begun promulgating and performing an identity attached to a history that we know to be, as Stefan Palmier would put it, cooked up. And secondly, Rich's role in a human rights case where he performed some kind of light fudging of his understandings of Saramaka's 21st century realities in order to save uh, the Saramakas from the state's takeover of land that they've called their own for over 300 years. It may be that all such stories, tell, uh, that all that such stories tell us is that the world has become more complex since that classic period of anthropology when the definitions in Gertzian terms of we and they and here and there were a lot more clear cut. But of course, the moral terrain that ethnographers tread has shifted as well. Should we really be insisting on our understandings of the history and culture of the, uh, of history and culture of the society we study in those situations where a new generation within that society is adopting a very different storyline as part of its accommodation to the 21st century world? Mightn't we need to loosen our hold on the conviction that we are advocates for indigenous cultures and defenders of our people? And isn't it time for us to acknowledge that the story we tell is only one of several narratives, clearly useful for some purposes, but not for others? <clears throat> However we come out on these sorts of questions, we clearly need to adopt a good dose of humility in terms of the intellectual positions that we decide in the end to embrace. And yet, we remain uncomfortable with the idea that our narratives, our partial truths, are just one of several narratives. We spend a good deal of our time deconstructing authenticity and the concept of culture at the same time that some of the people we study are embracing and essentializing these concepts and marketing them internationally. The TLS reviewer of Jim Clifford's recent book, Returns, cited a sentence Clifford wrote about the language-rich area covered by present-day California. Clifford wrote, and I quote, it's in this book, he said, Alfred Krober and his colleagues set out to document this extraordinary linguistic diversity which they felt 
to be disappearing. The reviewer wrote, no, it was disappearing. That not so subtle difference is kind of what's at stake for us here today. All narratives aren't equal. And somehow we still feel that we have the responsibility to try to tell it like we see it, with all the theoretical caveats and political conundrums that entails. This year, as Sally said, marks the 52nd anniversary of our initial encounters with Samaka Maroons. Our earliest publication about the Samaka, our earliest publications, written at the tail end of the civil rights movement, possessed the inherent moral uplift associated with these African-American rebels who had broken the chains of slavery and built a new culture and society in the South American rainforest. The story we told was decidedly heroic. Non-literate people, hitherto considered by outsiders, including many anthropologists, to be without history, were given back their intellectual life and their history, recognition of those things. People whose art had been thought by outsiders to have come directly from Africa were given back their New World creativity and their actual art history. On behalf of Samamakas, and doing our very best to express their own perspectives, we wrote against the many essentialisms pervaded by other outsiders, from Harvard-based Afrocentrists to various Neo-Herskovitsians. Indeed, my own 1983 book, recounting Samaka history through the words of their own historians, served as Jim Clifford's prime example of what he meant by the term partial truths. So for some 20 years, to the 60s and 70s, into the 80s, we were comfortable with the idea that we were engaged in an almost noble enterprise, telling stories that were in accord with those of the people whose lives we were studying. And then, as the situation of Samakas began to change dramatically, and with it the kinds of issues that we were called upon to describe and analyze, we were faced with less clear visions of how to maintain our solidarity with the people we had come to care so much about. 32 years ago, a civil war broke out that pitted Samakas and other Maroons against the national government of Suriname. By the time it ended in 1992, a third of the Maroons had moved over the border to French Guiana. And the two of us, as the most visible and activist academic supporters of the Samakas and other Maroons, had been barred by the national government from ever again setting foot in Suriname and condemned to continuing our work with Samakas and other Maroons on the French side of the border. The war brought stark changes to Samaka. The forest and river and world we'd known in the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s was home to Samakas living in a state within a state, where the paramount chief decided who could visit in the territory. Tourists were not welcome. Money was rarely exchanged. Hunting and fishing catches were shared among kinsmen, and women farmed their rice and vegetable gardens only very rarely traveling to the world outside. But that world was replaced by one in which a road built by a Chinese contractor without the Samaka's permission gave easy access to their villages from the city. Tourist camps were established, usually by outsiders. 
evangelical and other new religions arrived, fish and game and garden produce became commodities to sell for money, and Peace Corps volunteers arrived. In addition, the national government set out on an aggressive plan to integrate both Maroons and Amerindians into the national society, luring them into the capital at the very bottom of the social pyramid and emptying out the interior of the country for natural resource exploitation by the state. These very wrenching changes were specific to Suriname, but also comparable to situations experienced by ex-primitives throughout the world during the same period. And they were what set the stage for our decision to return to our early experiences in Salmaka as a way of exploring an earlier era in the history of anthropology with all the ethical and epistemological questions that it would inevitably stir up, including the dilemma connected to the danger of, as Jean Jackson put it, making enemies. Evoking the way Tucanoan Indians of Colombia were, as she said, inventing, creating, packaging, and sometimes selling their culture, Jean Jackson underscored that, as she said, speaking of people as political actors who are changing culture runs the risk of seeming to speak of them in negative terms, the implication being that the culture resulting from these operations is not really authentic. Or as Jocelyn Linekin put it two years later, she said, the concern at times phrased as an accusation is that writing about the contemporary construction or invention of culture undercuts the cultural authority of indigenous peoples by calling into question their authenticity. Like many of the fruitful fictions that have grabbed the attention of anthropologists lately, the one that I've been interested in began as a Western stereotype concerning people viewed as exotic or primitive. And it was only much later adopted by the people that it stereotyped in response to changing circumstances in their lives. I'm going to start with the stereotype, that is the outsider stereotype, before moving on to the way it was adopted by the people themselves. <clears throat> Ever since the late 19th century, the literature on maroons, both scholarly and popular, has insisted that the very popular uh, men's art of wood carving, which is really the one thing that most people know about maroons, uh, it's called tembe. They've insisted that it functions as a symbolic system to communicate messages from the artist, who is a man, to the recipient of the carving, who is a woman, the man's wife or his lover. And I should mention, parenthetically, that the story that I'm going to be telling today leaves aside the artistry of maroon women, which is really quite stunning. It's been largely ignored in, the, in past literature. Um, Maroon women's art was never even noticed by outsiders until we began to work with maroons. Um, but that would get us into a completely other uh, lecture. So I'm going to leave that aside and just assure you that women have as interesting a story to tell as the men. Um, so the stereotype. A forestry worker named Munslach, who encountered maroons frequently in the course of his work as a, as a forestry worker, um, decided to write a dictionary, we called it a dictionary of maroon symbols, promoting the idea that, quote, the motifs are like words. By reading them correctly, 
just like letters and words, it is possible to understand the maker's intent. Exactly the way a comma can change the sense of a sentence, <coughs> placing a particular motif next to another particular motif changes the wood carving's meaning. Um, all of which maroon say is absolutely not true. One maroon artist who set up a stall next to the road to the Suriname airport tried his best to explain to tourists that no, his art did not consist of symbols and it did not send messages, but they just wouldn't listen. So he finally just bought a copy of Munzag's little <laughs> dictionary, which he couldn't read because he'd never been to school, and uh, told the tourists to look up the meanings for themselves. Um, second example, and to show you how much of a stereotype this, this uh, is, the, the meaningful motif stereotype, um, Melville Horskovitz, who visited the Sarmakas in the 1920s, decided at some point that the reason that the carvers were not willing to explain to him what their art meant was that the motifs were symbols that held deep cultural secrets about fertility and the gods. In the end, he simply provided readings of his own when the Maroons refused to supply them. We have several examples of that. Our own efforts in the field to explore symbols in wood carving were met with across-the-board denials. One example is uh, when Rich was interviewing a man named Asipe, about in his 50s at the time. He asked him about Herskovitz's claim that the crescent moon shape was a sexual symbol representing the male member. That's what Herskovitz said. So Asipe said, well, gee, I never heard that interpretation. <laughs> and the conversation passed on to other subjects. But then the next morning, so that was an afternoon interview, the next morning, Asipe arrived at our house looking very embarrassed. And he said, please, you know, you have to understand, please excuse my ignorance of the world. Um, but could you tell me whether penises of white men <laughs> look like that. <laughs> quite None of the attempts by Maroons to deny the existence of symbols in their art has ever dampened the conviction of outsiders that the wood carvings constitute a kind of secret code. But as Ritz and I, as ethnographers, saw ourselves as defenders of the truth, impeccably positioned and honor-bound to represent the Maroons' own perspectives on the matter. Anthropological colleagues who were working with Maroons in the, in the eastern part of Suriname were also emphatic that the men's art there, whether executed as carving or now increasingly as commercial paints with the same kinds of designs, was de designed for formal beauty, not for the transmission of messages. The dividing line between ethnographic truth and misinformed stereotype was not in question. It was very clear to us. Our duty as ethnographers was to do battle with the stereotype. Now, if we fast forward to the final decade of the 20th century, things get a lot murkier. A lot has happened since that conversation with Asipe, including his own demise from a snake bite as he was hunting in the forest. Since Suriname's independence from the Netherlands, which was in 1975, Sarmakas and other Maroons have become considerably less isolated from the world outside. 
Travel by canoe to and from the capital has been cut from days to hours. <clears throat> Saramakas have participated in national elections. Evolving ideas about gender have eroded the power of elders to keep their women from traveling outside of Saramaka territory. And as Rich mentioned, a war between Maroons and the Suriname government has devastated life in the interior, sending many thousands of Maroons fleeing across the border <coughs> into French Guiana. In French Guiana, Maroons, along with the various Amerindian peoples of the interior, became the target of an extremely aggressive program authored in Paris called Francisation, Frenchification. And it was aimed at bringing them into line in terms of French language, education, values, and lifestyle. This assimilationist politics has had a profound impact, as you can imagine, on, among other things, the maroon art of Tembe, or at least that considerable portion of Tembe that passes through the new channels of distribution. And in the process, important new opportunities have opened up for maroon artists. Cultural centers and cooperatives, all generously funded by the French, and in most cases run by European directors, have been established throughout French Guiana, and they serve as active outlets for tembe art. An enormous festival of marinage draws thousands of spectators every two years, giving artists a whole new level of exposure and marketing opportunities. Souvenir stores in the capital and in smaller towns feature maroon art prominently in their show <coughs> windows. There are exhibitions, art prizes, museum displays, exhibit openings in trendy restaurants, magazine articles, TV and radio coverage, commissions for the decoration of public buildings, and chances for travel to Europe and beyond. Maroon artists now have websites, they have Facebook pages, they have email accounts. At the same time, and just parenthetically, there are artists who haven't been able to get residence papers, and they are still eking out a living at crudely built stalls set up along the country roads where they occasionally make a sale to a passing tourist. But the mainstream, the bulk of Maroon Tembe activity in Guyane runs along infinitely more lucrative and more sophisticated marketing channels. Maroon artists are as talented and creative as ever, and they now find themselves surrounded by people who are well equipped to advance their professional careers and thus bring them the money they need to uh, be able to enjoy the benefits of their newly assimilated situation. The European directors of the cooperatives they belong to are prime advisors, calling on funding from sources such as UNESCO, the European Space Center, the Architecture School of Grenoble in France, and the French Ministry of Culture. All this to produce glossy publications designed to promote the art. These publications, which reflect sophisticated marketing strategies, actively promote the idea of exotic symbolic messages. I'll just quote from one of them. There, there are many possible quotes, but here's one in translation. The symbolic figures constitute a kind of lexicon that is transmitted from generation to generation. What we're dealing with here are actual messages with the carved object allowing the happy recipient to decipher below the surface lines a veritable discourse. Another one says, 
The designs are a language for use in relations between the sexes, a symbolic language that is intended to amuse and seduce the woman. It's a rebus that the man gives her to decipher. Many young market-savvy timbe artists now ascribe to this vision, claiming that they have learned it from their fathers and grandfathers. But when we speak with the older artists, including their fathers and grandfathers, some of whom we've known for decades, they all tell us that while many motifs do have names, they do not carry messages, and that you can't combine one motive with another to express something. They say, yes, a carving serves to express a man's love for a woman. That's true, but only in the sense that he's offering her a very beautiful gift. And I, I would just note that it's men who have promoted this idea about symbolic meaning without paying any attention to women's views. It wasn't until about two or three years ago that my own conversations with maroon women were joined, interestingly, um, by those of other investigators. One was Olivia da Cunha, a Brazilian anthropologist, who some of you may know, who was doing field work with Juca maroon women, that is maroons in the, to the east of the Samagas. And the other was a cultural organization in Suriname called Kravasi that published a survey on this subject. Like me, both Olivia and the Kravasi interviewers were unable to locate a single woman who had any idea how to read these motifs, or for that matter, any particular interest in doing so. And so this casts a further pall on the idea of Tembe as a rebus designed to amuse and seduce a woman. In some cases, the European friends of young artists, young maroon artists, are playing a role in the marketing of their art, and with it, the myth of symbolic meaning. Take, for example, the case of Frankie Amete, a talented Aluku artist who collaborated with a British artist, uh, yeah, a British artist named Hat Eaton, who was creating textiles with maroon designs. Yeah, here's Hat. Frankie Amete gave her readings of the motifs that she integrated in her pareos when she asked. And when Frankie was living with a French woman named Anne, she apparently told him about Navajo sand paintings, which then inspired him to create an entirely new medium. This is Hat Eaton's uh, pareo on the right. She, when, when you bought it, she gave you a postcard that explained what each symbol meant. And it was very popular in French Guiana. It was used in the uh, beauty contest for Miss Saint Laurent of 2000, and what was it? I can't remember what year. Um, and it's flown as banners by the canoes on the river, and so it was very popular. But it all comes from Frankie Amete's made these textiles, sent them to Indonesia to be manufactured, and brought them back and sells them in the airport. And so. Sometime later, I again ran into Frank. He's very creative. He's doing all kinds of new things. I ran into his creativity while browsing in a bookstore in Cayenne. Responding to the new commercially driven situation he was in, and again with Anne's support, he had published a coloring book for children. Oh, that was another sound thing, so yeah. In addition to the designs, it offered a text entitled A Secret Code, which asserted that in Tembe, not only the forms, but also the colors carried symbolic meaning. 
Each page carried a diagram indicating which color to use for which motif in order to make the design say, for example, take care of yourself, or you and me for eternity, or marry me. But there was more. The coloring book also introduced a claim concerning the early history of maroon art that we had never before encountered. First time. Page one declared, in translation, the art of tembe was used as a means of communication among plantation slaves comparable to secret messages in code. After the slaves escaped their servitude and established themselves on the banks of the river, it became the written language of a community that had, until then, been based on oral tradition. Similar claims about the origin of Tembe. Tembe began well after the moons had established themselves in the forest. It did not begin earlier. Um, other similar claims began to appear in documents that were distributed by various cooperatives. One of them, uh, which I saw in a handout, but now it's become a, it's in a very glossy book, it takes readers back to the slave era in florid prose to evoke the setting. It, it, it's extremely florid French, but here's, here's my rendition of it. It all began with a call to solidarity and the recognition of others on the road to liberty, the mark tracing movements and struggles of liberation in the dust of the plantation. Everything began with a few lines furtively scratched in the soil, the mark of the maroon preparing his flight in complicity, coded messages, discreet, secret, and ritualized. Once peace came and freedom was won, there was leisure time, and the tembe was transformed into an art form. Later on, I came across a second coloring book by another maroon artist that also proposed meanings for each color, though they, they didn't correspond at all to the ones in Frankie Amete's coloring book. This one took the notion of slave origins to a new level. It asserted that Africans fresh off the boat from Africa invented a writing system for communication on the plantations that they, uh, and that they used it to record, as he says, the story of each slave's escape, the genealogy of each family, and detailed information on customs, traditions, and culture indispensable for the transmission of their history and identity. The decades-long multi-sided ethnographic research that's been done not only by Rich and me, but also by other serious anthropologists, has definitively placed the beginnings of Tembe only in the early to mid-19th century. So this depiction of slave era origins was, to put it mildly, a serious eyebrow raiser. Nor did the elements of the colors as part of the tradition make sense to us since maroon artists only began to use colors in the 20th century. Nevertheless, the claims regarding tembe as a language, including color symbolism, and its origins in early slavery were becoming widely accepted notably by the involvement of French-funded cooperatives in local school programs. This sort of situation has, of course, been played out in many other corners of the world as well. Sidney Kasfir has documented the way post-colonial cooperatives in Africa have succeeded in putting a new spin on the arts they promote, <coughs> leading to what she calls the emergence of new African art onto the world stage beginning in the 1950s and 60s as a major act of cultural brokerage 
by a small number of mainly European supporters. To cite just one of her many examples, the organizers of workshops in Namibia acting to protect Bushmen artists lest they be exploited by, um, this is a quote, by unscrupulous outsiders have ended up constructing and authenticating a Bushman culture for the benefit of the rest of the world, linking the workshop artists with the Bushman hunting and gathering past, even though none of the artists or their families have ever lived that way because this gives their art a pedigree which spectators will see as authentic. What we see happening in maroon art of the 21st century is young artists embracing a claim about maroon tembe that began as the easily discredited product of an outside vision, outsider's vision of life among black, barefoot natives of the rainforest. That is, the claim that it serves as a language of symbols sending messages from men to women. This claim is being turned into a storyline that's co-authored by insiders, embellished with historical imagining, and authenticated through media outlets, government programs, art catalogs, and school programs. It's a fruitful fiction in that it's providing livelihoods for people grappling with a situation that they aren't responsible, it's not of their making. But it still raises both ethical and epistemological questions for the anthropologists who believe in the value of their partial truths. So I'm gonna leave that dilemma as a question mark, give the microphone back to Rich, um, who has a different kind of story to tell, and then at the end we're gonna try to figure out where all this leaves us. There has been a continuing tension between anthropology and human rights law ever since Melville Herskovitz wrote a controversial memo on behalf of the American Anthropological Association to Eleanor Roosevelt, who was chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights that was then drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Herskovitz argued, and I quote, for the right of men to live in terms of their own traditions. In contrast, the Universal Declaration proclaimed a series of universal values concerning, for example, racial, gender, and religious equality. Herskovitz, who was a staunch cultural relativist and anti-imperialist, did not believe that such values were appropriate to impose cross-culturally. What seems to have happened is that at least in international human rights jurisprudence regarding indigenous or tribal peoples, a version of Herskovitz's cultural relativism eventually won the day. In current human rights law, indigenous people and Maroons enjoy the right to practice their culture. But in my view, it remains very much a 1950s version of the concept of culture. This has been my personal dilemma ever since I was first solicited by the Samaka people in the 1990s to help them defend their territory after the end of the Suriname Civil War. Let me summarize briefly the complicated story told in one of my books, Rainforest Warriors, before returning to this dilemma. During the 1990s, Samakas suddenly found their territory and they lived in houses like the one on the, the inset and that's the river. They found their territory invaded by Chinese 
and other multinational logging and mining companies which were extracting resources with the explicit permission of the state. The post-independence constitution of Suriname specifies that all non-titled land and resources belong to the state, rendering Samakas and other Maroon and indigenous peoples little more than guests on government lands. The Constitution also denies the possibility that Salmakas or other indigenous or Maroon peoples could have a juridical personality and therefore collective rights to property or rights to anything else. After Chinese loggers began to devastate their forested territory, Salmakas managed to organize their more than 60 villages, which were strung out along the Suriname River, for the coming legal battle. In 2000, they petitioned the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights in Washington, and after years of testimony and petitions in which I played an active role, they won a signal victory in 2007 before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which sits in Costa Rica. In their landmark decision of 2007, the justices concluded, and I quote, that the members of the Samaka people make up a tribal community who have a special relationship with their ancestral territories and who regulate themselves by their own norms, customs, and traditions. The justices wrote that like indigenous peoples, the Salmaka are therefore subject to special measures to ensure the full exercise of their rights. Henceforth, Salmakas and other Maroons throughout the Americas were to be treated as equivalent to indigenous peoples in international law and subject to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was passed in 2007. The judgment also concluded that Suriname had violated numerous articles of the American Convention on Human Rights and ordered Suriname to take a series of 10 actions, the most important of which was to delimit, demarcate, and grant collective title over the territory of the Samaka people in accordance with their customary laws. Indeed, the justices specified that the map made by the Salmaka people, which I presented to the court, and which included territorial boundaries as defined by the Salmaka's history and traditions where their ancestors had had villages, that that should serve as the benchmark for titling by the state. The judgment also mandated that the state must grant the Salmaka people legal recognition of their collective juridical capacity with the purpose of ensuring their right to communal property as well as collective access to justice. The state was also ordered to adopt legislative and administrative measures necessary to ensure the right of the Samaka people to be effectively consulted in accordance with their traditions and customs with regard to development or investment projects that might affect their territory, and the Samakas should have the right to give or withhold their free, informed, and prior consent to any such project. And if they approved it, the court said, the Samaka people would be entitled to share in the benefits of any mining or logging project. Finally, the state was ordered to set up a community development fund to be managed by the Samaka people for their benefit as compensation for damages that they'd suffered from the state's incursions. And its initial capital was set at about three quarters of a million US dollars. This was a fund the Samakas were supposed to run. In other words, the 2007 judgment ordered Suriname to change its laws and, if necessary, its constitution 
in order to grant the Saramaka people collective title to their traditional territory, as well as considerable sovereignty over it. Jurisprudence that henceforth applied to all indigenous people and all Maroons in the Americas. The arguments before the court had centered on whether the Saramakas were, as the state of Suriname claimed, simply citizens of Suriname, like everyone else who lived in the country, or, as the Saramakas claimed, a traditional tribal people whose lives differed radically from those of other Surinamers. Since 1992, serving as so-called expert witness on behalf of the Salmaka people in cases before the Inter-American Court, my role had been largely to provide evidence of Salmaka difference, to support their claims of otherness. In short, to provide detailed evidence that they fit into what my student Rolf Tuyot so aptly called the savage slot. Long ago, I realized that the justices of the court, well-meaning, educated, bourgeois judges from throughout the Americas, the judge who wrote this final opinion was from Jamaica, but they come from Barbados, from Brazil, from Argentina, Peru, all over. There are, at any one time, there are, I think, nine of them or 11. I can't remember. Um, It became clear to me that they collectively subscribed to a package of received wisdom about indigenous or tribal peoples that harked back to the mid-20th century. They tended to see such peoples as bound by tradition, their lives fraught with myth and symbolism. Indigenous peoples and Maroons had communities, they thought, that were resistant to change and governed by, governed by custom, living outside of history, ruled by the changing seasons, in perfect harmony with nature. And you can add the rest. Now, I realized that international human rights legislation was built on similar ideas, often encouraged by modern indigenous activists who are exemplars of the Komarov's Ethnicity, Inc. label. Listen carefully to the wording of the court's ruling. I'm going to quote a paragraph. The members of the Samaka people are to be considered a tribal community. The court's jurisprudence regarding indigenous people's right to property is also applicable to tribal peoples because both share distinct social, cultural, and economic characteristics, including a special relationship with their ancestral territories, which require special measures under international human rights law in order to guarantee their physical and cultural survival. The lands and resources of the Samaka people are part of their social, ancestral, and spiritual essence. Their sacred sites are scattered throughout the territory, while at the same time the territory itself has a sacred value to them. Samaka's identity with the land is inextricably linked to their historical fight for freedom from slavery, called by them first time. So, that's the end of the quote. By emphasizing such words, words as tribal, indigenous, ancestral, customs, tradition, spiritual, sacred, cultural survival. The court's texts fit comfortably with the ethnicity and paradigm. So what's not to like? Well, remember Eric Wolf's 1982 warning. He wrote, by turning names into things, we create false models of reality. By endowing nations, societies, or cultures with the qualities of internally homogeneous and externally distinctive and bounded objects, 
We create a model of the world as a global pool hall in which the entities spin off each other like so many hard and round billiard balls. Wolf argued that during the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries, the terms modern and modernization came to stand for a democratic, rational, and secular West, in particular the United States, while traditional came to refer, he said, to all the others that would have to adopt that ideal to qualify for assistance. And in my view, that's about where human rights law regarding indigenous and tribal people stands today. The tension between that view and what we as anthropologists have been doing for the past half century put special burdens on an anthropologist or human rights lawyer arguing on behalf of the Samakas before the Inter-American Court. It became necessary for purposes of argument for me to accept the multiple fictions that created the category of tribal peoples. But at the same time, I felt a strong itch to try and insist that such peoples live and have always lived fully in history, that they exercise their own agency, that they adopt and have always adopted changes, that they possess a degree of historical consciousness that permits them to make sophisticated choices about directions for their society's future. In short, I was itching to insist that they are in every way as modern as we. But how to do that? while supporting the, the idea that there's such a thing as tribal peoples, a notion that was key to securing the rights of the Samakas. That's where my own partial truths and the fruitful fictions required to win this case collided. Let me quickly tack on a starker case of partial truths and fruitful fictions, this one from Brazil. In 1998, spending a semester teaching in Bahia, I wrote a critique of the efforts of Brazilian anthropologists to help poor rural black communities get recognized as quilombos in order to get communal titles to their lands, which they had recently been guaranteed under the new post-dictatorship constitution of Brazil. At that time, quilombo clearly meant maroon communities, descendants of escaped slaves. If you could prove you were living in a maroon community, you got collective title to land. I wrote, at that time in an article that was published in Portuguese and in English, of my own discomfort as a student of such maroon societies elsewhere in the Americas at the willingness of Brazilian anthropologists to trade ends for means by, in effect, helping communities make up a history of rebellion from slavery that had the potential to get them something they needed and deserved. And the fact that they often use my own books on Maroon communities elsewhere in making their arguments before their courts about these Brazilian communities only increased my discomfort, since historically, most of those Brazilian communities had not been formed by Maroons. They were formed by freed slaves. Slaves who, at the in abolition, the masters left, and they were living in the same place where they had served as slaves. Since that time, Brazilian anthropologists and black activists have gone further, successfully redefining the word quilombo to include not just the descendants of an original Maroon community, but the descendants of any community of enslaved people who still live in the same place where they once lived as slaves. I recently met an American anthropologist who was working in one such rural black community when a Brazilian anthropologist showed up and explained to these people that they were descendants of a quilombo. They'd never heard the term before. 
They had no history of being descended from escaped slaves. Remember, Brazilian slavery ended in 1888. It's very recent. But soon, they began calling themselves Wakilombo, and they've since put in a petition to get collective rights to their land. Today, a significant portion of Brazilian graduate students in anthropology, in many graduate programs, half of the students in the anthropology, or getting PhDs, um, are being trained specifically for the job of working with lawyers, agronomists, historians, and various branches of government to teach rural black communities and some urban black communities as well, for instance in Salvador, how to become quilombos and how to work their way through the complex process of getting collective title to their land. Today, there are some 3,000 active projects underway in Brazil, each with its anthropological mentor, recent graduates. Does anyone, an outside anthropologist like me or anyone else, have the right or the intellectual responsibility to comment on these phenomena? It has certainly caused a big divide among anthropologists in Brazil, leading to once close colleagues who no longer speak to each other. It doesn't make me very popular in certain circles in Brazil. Where are our loyalties as anthropologists and as human beings? What ends justify what means? Just one final reflection. During the past couple of decades, there's been an active debate about the relative importance of discourse and event in the study of the African-American past. The Jamaican anthropologist David Scott first voiced it when he criticized my book, First Time, for an effect espousing what has come to be called verificationism, accusing me of writing as if Samaka somehow needed my findings from the Dutch archives in order to validate their own historical discourse. The anthropologist's role, he argues, should instead be to focus on discourse, trying to analyze the meaning to Samakas of such figures as slavery, Africa, or resistance. Apparently, in his view, First Time should have presented the Samakas versions of their history, which it did, but without the archival material that I added in. I'm not going to rehearse that debate once again here. It's already seen too much ink spilled. But I would point out that Samakas themselves care deeply about the complex relationship between discourse and event. In that case, disregarding, not presenting the historical facts that come from Western archives would be depriving Samakas of information that they consider enormously valuable today. When as part of the 2007 victory before the Inter-American Court for Human Rights, the Samaka people received more than half a million dollars in damages, the very first thing they voted to do in council was to ask Sally and me to translate first time, which was in English and in French at the time, into their own language, Samaka Tongo. We spent two years on that task, working at the end with a Samaka linguist to develop an orthography for the language. And in 2013, we published Fesite as the first book ever published in the Samaka language. And the Samaka people then, we of course refused the money that they offered us, but they, used, they bought 3,000 copies to distribute in Samaka schools and in Samaka territory which shows how much they care about their history, both discourse and event. Samakas want those verifications. It makes their own history more important to them. 
So these arcane and sometimes abstract debates in the academy have consequences in the real world as well, both for anthropologists and for the people they study. And it's why we've spent a good deal of the past few years rewriting versions of several of our books, originally published in English, in French, which now a third of Salamacas live in French Guiana, and a whole new generation has gone to French schools, and they read. There are now uh, Salamacas who are at Sciences Po in Paris, and who become physicians in Paris, and so on, and they read books. So we've published you know, a dozen of our books in French, and we've also published a second book in the Salamaca language just a few months ago. Um, it's a book that we first published at the University of Chicago in the 1990s, and we now put it into Salamaca. And while writing our new book, uh, Salamaca Dreaming, we were constantly surprised by the way anthropologists in the mid-20th century, including our younger selves, thought about the world and about the discipline and by how much has changed, as well as by what has remained the same. And we hope that this book will provide a window for readers who never had the chance to go upriver into that particular savage slot to reflect on some of these broader issues as well. So we'd be happy to hear reactions and questions. Thank you. Thank you.